This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. You know, here on the Russell Moore Show, one of the things that we do from time to time is tell me where I'm wrong, where I talk to someone who would disagree with me on something. And the rules of the game are that I'm not allowed to argue. I'm just allowed to ask questions to get better insight. And so the next guest that we're going to be talking to in a few minutes, Rain Wilson, Dwight Schrute from The Office, who's written this new book on spirituality. We would see things very differently. He sees spirituality in a much more general sense, where I, as an evangelical Christian, have a very specific and objective view of Jesus Christ. But I think we have a good and, and respectful conversation. We did both on the air and off the air. One of the things that I had to really, really keep myself from doing was making constant office quotations and uh, puns. So I have someone who says that I'm only five or six seconds away from a Bible quotation or an office citation. So I'm trying not to do that. Let's listen to the conversation with Rain Wilson. Rain Wilson, three-time Emmy-nominated actor, the founder of Soul Pancake, has a show, Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, on Peacock, and the author of the new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Rain Wilson, thanks for being on The Russell Moore Show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll say in reading this, there wasn't a lot of Battlestar Galactica, but there was a lot of Star Trek here. <laughs> uh, references. And so I, I'm wondering how Dwight Schrute and anti-Dwight Schrute are you in real life? Uh, there's a lot of similarities. I'm a little bit socially awkward. I um, have a sense of kind of right and wrong, and I can be kind of a jerk sometimes. 
So those are some ways that we intersect. We certainly are both big Battlestar Galactica fans, although, like you said, I reference Star Trek a lot more because I think there is some spiritual benefit to the investigation of Star Trek. But I think that the main thing about Dwight is his world and his world vision is pretty small, right? So he's all about hierarchies, who's got power, who's in charge. He's very clannish. It's very about who's a shrewd and who's not. And in Dunder Mifflin, you know, who has kind of a social capital over others. So he can be a bully. He can be a nerd. He can be a toady. And I would say that I hope that Rain Wilson has a little bit more uh, wide-ranging spiritual maturity and is mm. able to lovingly embrace people that are different than him in a more holistic way. Mm. You mention several times in the book Soul Boom sort of explaining why you're talking about religion for people who will be turned away by that. And mm. I'm wondering, when you think about in popular culture right now, usually when religion is depicted, it's either in a cheesy sort of almost propaganda-ish way done mm -hmm. by religious people or in more mainstream pop culture, the religious person is usually the villain and religion is almost always presented in a dark manner. Do you think that that's more because of a a distance from culture makers and religious life, or is this just the moment we're in right now? Uh, that's a great question. And you might be referring to, maybe you're not, but I had a tweet that got a lot of uh, heat about a month or two ago where I was watching this wonderful show on HBO called The Last of Us about this post-apocalyptic survivors trying to make it on planet Earth. And it's pretty exciting and well done, well acted. And one of the episodes started, and it started with a pastor reading to his congregation from the book of Revelation. And and immediately, I mean, half second in, I'm like, oh, he's evil. Mm. And it turns out not only was he evil, he was a pedophile cannibal. Like, as evil as you could make a human being, they made this guy. And my first thought was like, that's just lazy writing. It's just, it's lazy. I've seen it a thousand times where it's like, because... Everyone likes a good hypocrite as a villain, and it's the easiest kind of, you know, uh, storytelling to have someone pretending to be spiritual, a spiritual leader, and they actually have this, you know, dark underbelly. And, and, and I think that Hollywood unfairly uh, victimizes Christians and believers. You so rarely, if ever, see just a reasonable, kind, loving person of faith, who, by the way, I have tons of Christian friends. I love them so dearly. I learn from them so dearly. And they're kind people that want to make the world a better place. They love Jesus and they want to be of service and emulate Jesus's way toward the poor and the downtrodden. And they want to build community in there and they, they want to create diverse, loving communities. And that's so rarely pictured. And... Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, probably the kindest depiction that I can think of in recent years would be Ned Flanders. 
on The Simpsons. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Although he was, you know, Ned Flanders was the butt of jokes for the first like right. 20 years of the show. And then they kind of were like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe Ned Flanders could have some better qualities. And then they started to have episodes. It was only after decades that they kind of like revealed other sides of Ned and like, oh, maybe Ned knows something that Homer doesn't. And, and the Simpsons might be able to learn something from those Flanders. <laughs> yes. You mentioned in the book about religion right now being almost focused on sports and celebrity in terms of the way that we find a kind of spirituality. And you also talked about your grappling with addictions, maybe not addictions, but a pull toward certain kinds of addictions. I wonder, was celebrity, has that been an addiction you've had to avoid? I went through a lot of dark times in my 20s and early 30s when I had left the religion of my childhood, which is the Baha'i faith. And being raised Baha'i, I was raised to appreciate all faiths, to love the Bible, to study the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the writings of the Buddha. This is inherent. This is in the DNA of being a Baha'i. So conversations about deep spiritual topics, about the meaning of life and the nature of God and of the soul and the spiritual journeys that we all make on, in this human physical realm. When I jettisoned all that in my 20s, and I did deal with addiction issues, and I dealt with anxiety and depression and a lot of mental health stuff, I, I had a deep hunger to dig into spiritual topics and ideas. I want to quote the great writer Julia Cameron, who wrote that wonderful text called The Artist's Way. And she said, I come to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. And for me, I'm so grateful for those dark times that I underwent in my 20s because it set me on a spiritual path to kind of figure out who God was and what it was to believe in God and what it was to have a spiritual life um, and what the meaning of life might be. And again, this doesn't make me wise. It doesn't make me a guru or arrived or some kind of like exemplar, not at all. I just did a lot of digging and a lot of reading, and I read the Bible, and I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I read the Torah and the Dhammapadas of the Buddha, and Sikh works and Sufi texts, and eventually came back around to the faith of my childhood. But I, I truly believe that this religious quest has enriched my life and made it better has given me balance, has brought me a return to reason and, and sanity and, and wisdom. And going to your question about fame, yeah, so, you know, I need to use spiritual tools on a daily basis to balance myself because I'm such an anxious person and prone to, you know, addiction, depression, and other issues. So, my daily prayer and meditation practice is to is to balance me so that I'm just functional, Russell. It doesn't make me super wise or anything like that. I can just helps me get through my day better. Mm -hmm. But fame is is a tricky beast. It really is. So for me, as this insecure, anxious guy, my mom took off when I was a year and a half. I lived with my dad. We were very poor. I had a 
stepmom and they were in a very unhappy marriage. And, you know, we had a lot of good things about my childhood, but we all, I had a lot of trauma as well. All of a sudden, and after working as an actor for like 14 or 15 years, all of a sudden I had a certain measure of fame. So I'd gotten out of theater school. I'd done a bunch of theater and then plugged away in little TV shows and movies. And then all of a sudden I was getting recognized from The Office and some other movies and TV shows that I did around that time. And all of a sudden people are stopping me and going, I love you. Can you imagine that? Walking down the street, people grabbing you, like literally grabbing you, looking in your eyes and going, I love you. And you're just like, and here's this love-starved, little kid inside of me with all of a sudden getting this adulation. And it it was fascinating because I spent many years early on in the office craving more, like it wasn't enough. And I talked recently to the other actor on the show, BJ Novak, about this. And we we talked about the fact that our biggest regret from the office is that we just didn't enjoy it more. Like, mm after being a starving actor for decades, and then all of a sudden having a show that was winning awards, I was making a lot of money, they were wonderful, beautiful people that I was acting with, and people really adored the show. Like, let that be enough. But instead, I was like, but I want movies. I want to be, how yeah. come I'm not a movie star? Like Will Ferrell and Jack Black and, and Seth Rogen, like, and I've got to line this up and I've got to get this deal at the studio. And why didn't they buy my script? And, and why didn't they take my pitch? And I want a first look deal at Warner Brothers. And so it's, it's never enough, you know, and that mm. is one of the great spiritual conundrums, isn't it? That we have enough and yet it's never enough. It's like the Buddha describes life is suffering. The, the term he used was dukkha, and the Pali means kind of chronic, anxious dissatisfaction and, and a feeling a lack. And that hunger, the hungry ghost that wants more, kind of spent several years running the show. I'm one of the few actors in Hollywood talking about God, the soul, religion, spirituality. And frankly, I'm getting it from both sides. You know, I'm mm -hmm. getting it from the Christian right that is like, wait a minute, he's a Baha'i. That's the mm -hmm. devil's religion and he's going to hell and that's a false prophet and et cetera. And I'm getting it from the political left, which is like, he's talking about morality. There's no such thing as morality and oh God. And the whole problem with the world is religion and God and morality. And I'm happily getting it from both sides. And I actually enjoy being in that position because Russell, I've done a whole bunch of therapy and I don't really care what people think about me anymore. And it's such a beautiful release to be in my, shall I generously say, mid-50s and not caring what people think by and large. You know, one of the things that you talk about in the book that few people do, or at least in, in detail, is death. Mm -hmm. I was especially interested in the section about the death of your dad, maybe because mm -hmm. I lost my dad three years ago. And that's a, that's a shock to anyone's system, I think. And it doesn't matter how old one's father is when that happens. I'm wondering, what do you think happens to someone when he or she dies? I mean, what is that transcendence? What is that next step in your opinion? Um, 
I love it. You're just going right to the point. Like, here we go. Okay, I love it. The biggest, deepest possible question that humanity has wrestled with for hundreds of thousands of years. By the way, speaking of humanity having wrestled with this for hundreds of thousands of years, that is the earliest evidence that humanity has always had some kind of spiritual belief system is because humans and the oldest graves that we have found have been buried with things that they will need on a journey. So the oldest grave sites, the oldest human habitations have kings or elders buried with swords, with weapons, with sleds, with their trusty dogs by their sides, by, with you know backpacks or little cases with books, arrowheads, etc. So humanity has always had this idea that we're on a journey that doesn't end at the end of our physical life on this physical plane. So the best way that I can explain this is through a metaphor that's used in the Baha'i writings, which I love, and I bring it up in the book, and that has to do with the baby in the womb. So the baby in the womb is growing everything it needs for this world. It's growing eyelashes and eyelids and ears and elbows and fingers and everything you can possibly think of to function on this physical plane. If you went to a baby and you interviewed it and you said, hey, why are you growing eyes and ears? The baby would be like, I have no idea. I'm perfectly happy here in this sack, hanging out, I'm being fed, it's nice and warm. I'm happy, I'm comfortable. I don't know what I need. Why is all this stuff growing out of my body? But thank God that we have grown those organs for functionality in the physical world. We're doing the same thing on this physical plane. We're growing eyes and ears and elbows. They're not physical, they're spiritual. This is what we take with us. We don't take with us our bodies. We don't take with us our, our Toyotas. You know, We don't take with us our stuff. We take with us the qualities of the divine that we grow and develop and nurture in our hearts and in our actions over the course of our lives. So kindness, compassion, love, patience, creativity, light, all of the stuff that we grow and develop over the course of our lives are what we take with us. So part of our reason for existing, not all, part, is to develop the spiritual qualities of God, best exemplified by God's Son, Jesus Christ, by God's messenger, Muhammad, by the friend of God, Moses, by the awakened one, the Buddha, by the glory of God, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. In the Baha'i concept, there's no heaven and hell. Uh, it's a little bit different than some other faith traditions. Um, well, what, what, why would that be, though? Because if sort of the longings for love and transcendence, if that points us to something, does the longing for justice also point to a kind of accounting, a kind of judgment day? How, how, how does that uh, work itself out in the way you see certainly, the future? Um, Baha'u'llah says, bring thyself to account each day. Ere thou art summoned to a reckoning, because death unannounced shall soon visit you, and you will be called to account for your actions. So, is there a judgment day in that sense in the, in the Baha'i tradition, which I ascribe to? Absolutely. You, Russell, me, Rain, we will be called in front of the mighty throne 
humbled and on our knees and the entirety of our lives will be called in front of us and we'll be responsible for the choices that we make. I, I truly believe that. Do those who have fallen short, are they punished for eternity in a fiery pit? I don't get with that, nor do America's young people, uh, nor does most of the world. And that's where it's a little bit different. However, I will say that separation from the divine, distance from the divine is its own fiery pit. So if one hasn't developed those spiritual qualities and you are distant from God or, or Godishness, spiritualishness, then that is a kind of hell. And I've lived in a kind of hell and I've been in a hell of separation from the divine and I've been miserable and I have been suicidal and I have been, uh, What's the, what's the phrase? What's the parable of the, the son, the prodigal son? I've been the prodigal mm-hmm. son, you know, mm-hmm. and I have come back for mercy and for grace and forgiveness. So hell, in a way, to me, works metaphorically. But heaven is the infinite other realms uh, that await the glorious journey of the soul as we move forward from this physical world. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. You talk about in Soul Boom sort of the crisis of institutions, including organized religious institutions. And you say, why don't we make up our own religion? And you you have quite a a section on laying out uh, what that new religion would look like. And I'm just wondering as I read that, because I think you are you are so right on so many of the diagnoses of, of what's uh, happening. But when it comes to making up one's own religion, how is that not kind of um, recyclops? You know, uh, you're, <laughs> you, 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 you're kind of putting together a metaphor in a way that it would seem to me, in order for spirituality to actually bring about the goods that you talk about, it, there would have to be something objectively true, does it seem that it might be sort of trivializing of of religious claims? I mean, the difference yeah. between I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, as I do, and a Muslim friend who would completely reject incarnation and so forth, those would be really big differences for both of us, not just kind of a generic spirituality. So how do you think about that, about whether or not this is just one more form of kind of an expressive individualism? Yes, that's a great question. You're 100% right. Making up a religion does trivialize the truth of the world's great faith traditions. And that's why 
I hope I had enough tongue in cheek throughout that section to call it soul boom, trademark the religion. And my purpose in writing that chapter was not, in fact, to create any new religion. And that's made pretty clear in the chapter. Mm -hmm. But to get young people who have dismissed religion entirely and whole cloth to reconsider the amazing brilliance of organized religion. I talk in great length in the book about one of my favorite chapters in human history and one of the most progressive, which is the early centuries of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. Never before in the history of humanity, and a lot of Christians don't know this. I'm astonished that they don't, but never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than those early centuries of the church, where a church service would include a Phoenician sailor, a Roman gladiator, a, a Jewish theologian, a former slave, a former prostitute, and they would all be gathered acknowledging Jesus as the Son and the Lord as the Father, seeking grace, reading the, the letters of Paul, and praying, singing, worshiping together, and and all being accepted. That had never happened before in human history. Everything was tribal. And not only that, not only that, these early Christians sacrificed their time, their energy, their comfort, and their material wealth in service of others who weren't in their tribe. Mm -hmm. All those people would gather, and they would go find a sick family of Samaritans, and they would give them food, and they would give them comfort and clothing. And the Romans wrote about it. They were like, what is up with these people? They are serving others that aren't even the members of their tribe or family or race. What the hell is going on out here? And that's one of the reasons I believe that early Christianity was seen as a threat to empire. Mm. I hold in great esteem the world's faith traditions and certainly my own faith tradition, which incorporates and includes the word, not necessarily Christian practice or theology or what have you, but the red letter words of Jesus. But young people have rejected whole cloth religion in this modern age. And just now, just, I mean, literally last five or 10 years, social scientists and, and positive psychologists are going, hey, wait a second. Religion actually holds a great deal of keys to mental health and well-being during this, you know, mental health epidemic. And folks with faith, young folks with faith, are actually doing better than young folks without it. And they're starting to look at the hard data around this. It seems often when people talk about the benefits that come with religion, it seems to me that's sometimes kind of like saying placebos work, so let's all take placebos, <laughs> which means if you know it's a placebo, it doesn't work. And so the benefits of religion come with people who actually believe there's something objectively true there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means that there are things that are not. So, I mean, those, those early Christian communities are coming around yep. the letters of Paul, often that are saying, if Christ is not raised, none of this matters you would be better off just uh, living your life and dying. Yeah, they're not. Uh, it's not a rotary meeting. They're not getting yeah, together right. just <laughs> to kind of like hang out and have a potluck and share stories and good times and high-five each other. There is a central belief, like I said, that they hang their hat on at the center. Yeah. But I kind of feel like, well, does it really matter how anyone comes to the Father? Like, come for the potlucks, stay for the salvation. How about that? 
You could put that on a Christian bumper sticker. <laughs> you know, whatever draws young people into, if they're looking for community, give them community and draw them in. And if they're looking for love, give them a loving community. And, you know, eventually they may be drawn to some higher and more complex and real precepts. You, you have a section in the book where you talk about loneliness I thought was really perceptive that the loneliness leads to a kind of scanning for threats and that leads to anxiety and the anxiety leads to more loneliness and the cycle starts all over again. I mean, how, how, when you're dealing with teenagers right now, often who are in a state of heightened anxiety, everybody coming out of, of COVID, I mean, is there a way as a society that we can get out of that loop? I mean, it's kind of, I was just talking to someone uh, earlier today about a group of people who it seemed to me the first question they asked themselves about anything is, how am I being slighted by this? Which means you're always going to find slights mm -hmm. there. And so these people were making a miserable workplace for themselves by having that, that mentality. How do we Get out of that. You're asking me how to heal the mental health epidemic that <laughs> is the number one killer of young people in Western <laughs> society as suicide has become the number one mm -hmm. uh, cause of death for young folks. I believe, Russell, that there are tools in this great faith traditions, all of them, that can help us and not can help us, that will help us, and that we need, humanity desperately needs these tools and these ideas to find peace, meaning, tranquility, and purpose. And again, I'll use the phrase we, we've, just as I did when I was younger, I threw the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater. When I rejected the faith of my childhood, um, I also jettisoned all the spiritual tools that are available. So my book, I hope, works on lots of different levels, and I hope that atheists enjoy it, and I hope that born-again Christians enjoy it, because it's just having spiritual conversations, like you said, about death, about the soul, about the nature of life and suffering. In fact, let's go to suffering. Hmm. Part of the problem with contemporary American society is that parents have tried to take suffering away from their children. One of the, um, Abdu'l-Baha, the son of the founder of Baha'u'llah, who's a great spiritual teacher in the Baha'i tradition, he said very little about education of children. One of the things he said about education of children is he said, allow your children to become accustomed to hardship. And when you think about that in the context of contemporary civilization, where we try and take away all of the bruised elbows and skinned knees from our kids, and we try and give them every comfort, right? They call this affluenza. And mm -hmm. we try and take away any, and like, oh, you have a conflict, or oh, we'll put that out. Oh, this is difficult for you. Oh, let us, you know, helicopter parents kind of like taking away these problems and these difficulties. And also, we're not having conversations about suffering. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but it's in my book somewhere. There's a great quote by the Apostle Paul about suffering saying, I am glad for your suffering because it, create spiritual growth. Uh, do you happen to know it off the top yes, of your head? Uh, Romans 5, endurance and endurance uh, produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. 
That's great. And for me, because we're not talking about the nature of suffering, suffering grows our souls. We're in these soul-growing machines called human bodies. And we become grateful eventually for the suffering that we've undergone because it can be transformative. And why is there suffering? But suffering's part of the game. The Buddha says, I come for one reason and one reason only, suffering and the elimination of suffering. And that idea that suffering is a constant and an important part of life and that it's real and it's ultimately as hard as a pill is to swallow, it's ultimately for our benefit and it's a mystery of God. So the reason I'm lecturing right now on suffering is because if we're not raising our children to kind of understand suffering through a spiritual lens, then they're not going to gain resilience. And resilience is one of the things that psychologists write about that the younger generations are lacking, is a kind of emotional resilience to to obstacles and to difficulties. And again, we have thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater as we've rejected culturally religion. We're then also throwing out a conversation about the nature of suffering and our children are truly suffering because we're not talking to them about suffering. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You, you talk in the book, it was moving to me about your dad and your stepmom divorced right after you got out of high school and left. It seems to me there are a lot of kids who are in that state of just insecurity. They don't know what's going to happen next. What would you say to that 15-year-old uh, who's out there who says, I think I think my parents are about to divorce. I think my entire life is about to be uprooted and we're, we're going to have to move. What should I do? Um, yeah, divorce is, uh, that's a tough one. You know, what do you do when 50, 60% of marriages end in divorce? I, I wish I had, uh, I wish I had some wisdom around that. I think that, um, you know, I would say, you know, that old hippie bumper sticker, let there be peace in the world and let it begin with me. Like, mm -hmm. 
we want to develop world peace, you know, which is something that when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, people actually talked about world peace. They kind of were like, they longed for world peace. Beauty contestants, <laughs> scientists, philosophers, scholars, politicians talked about world peace. We thought it was possible. Um, I guess I'm digressing a little bit because I don't have a good answer. So I'm just flapping a bunch of hot <laughs> air. But I'm going to say that I'm going to say that peace starts with the family and grows from there. So it, it's super important work that I think for for folks that are a product of divorce to undertake a deep curiosity about maybe why their parents divorced and what mistakes they might have made and to envision what a, a loving monogamous relationship would look like and uh, and and seek to have that in their lives you know learn learn your parents lesson uh, so you can apply it to your own life that's the only thing I got on that but I, I wish I had a, a better answer but it's a super important topic right before uh, we started recording two of my sons wanted to be here to see you they've never asked to be here for any it's other because you have recording. such boring guests, Russell. Jeez. I, yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. But they, there, there's an entire generation. I mean, the office isn't like Three's Company or uh, <laughs> even All in the Family or, or or one of these sitcoms. It lives, especially with Gen Z, millennials, those who are below Gen Z coming up, who often are watching it on a loop all the time. Mm. And there was, uh, someone had written about how odd it is that there's an escapist fantasy about working at a paper company in, <laughs> in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But it does seem to be comforting in some way to entirely new generations of people. Why do you suppose that is? Well, people have been asking me on my book tour about spirituality as it relates to the office. And I will say this, that at its heart, the very last line that's said by Pam, the very last line of the episode is, is I, I, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's, it's about like, there's beauty in the ordinary and isn't that what it's all about? And that's how the show ends. The beauty in ordinary things. And I think that 90% of the office, 93% of the office is just silliness. But 7% of it is about real human connection. It's about family. It's about people coming together and finding the beauty in the ordinary things. So I think that's what that magic recipe that Greg Daniels, our showrunner, sprinkled in his magic Hollywood fairy dust over the show that keeps people coming back time and time again to enjoy those characters. And, but it is, it's pretty preposterous that I've run into a lot of young people and they're like, I want to get a job just like a Dunder Mifflin. Like they think <laughs> like working in an office, which can be soul sucking drudgery. Believe me, I did it for years is kind of has that kind of the warmth and heart and zaniness of of working at Dunder Mifflin. But I'm you know, listen, this this leads to another topic, which is in the Baha'i faith, we're taught that work in the spirit of service is worship in the eyes of God. So working in service to others is a form of worship, just like prayer. And although I didn't 
go into the office. None of us went to make the office to be of service. It's been a wonderful byproduct that the show has brought so much solace and hope and joy to people during really hard times. And I hear that every day from folks like the show means so much to me. Thank you for making it. You know, I brought my siblings together when my parents were getting a divorce. Uh, we would sit around and watch it when my aunt had cancer. And, you know, I'm honored and blessed to be a part of a show that was able to bring some warmth and solace into people's lives. Hmm. Well, it strikes me that one of the reasons that you talk about in the book, one of the reasons you wrote the book is because there is a danger of, I don't think you use the, the word cynicism, but there is a danger of cynicism and numbness and hardening. And I thought about institutions when I came across a quote that Aaron Schur gave about the debate over whether or not Dwight or Andy should be manager after ah. Steve Carell left. Okay. And what he said was he was afraid that if Dwight was empowered as the boss, that it would be scary. He said it's funny if he sets the office on fire and blow torches all the doorknobs, but if he did that all day long without any sort of check on his behavior, it would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and as I read that, I thought, you know, it's almost a metaphor for why we have so much cynicism right now. It seems as though the whole world actually is being run by Dwight Schrute, that there are people <laughs> who don't seem to know how to actually lead through this. And it's it can be scary. Well, this is one of the theses. Is that a word? Theses? I don't mean theses. theses Theses of the book, which I talk about the spiritual revolution aspect, which is transforming uh, systems along spiritual lines. So many of our systems are broken and breaking down and are unsustainable because the systems themselves are based on the very worst qualities of humanity. They're based on competition and contest and every man for himself and one-upsmanship and survival of the fittest and not on community, consultation, love, common service, and cooperation. The other elements of humanity that have, you know, created the world's great religions and, and, um, and systems that actually work. With this toxic system of partisanship that we have in the country, where you have these two competing, like, rabid football teams, it's like when... Cleveland Browns and fans and and Pittsburgh Steelers fans get together and they're like, ah, or Philadelphia Eagle fans or whatever, and they loathe and they contemptuously hate the other party and seek to destroy it and seek as much power for themselves as, as possible. There couldn't be anything more unbiblical than the American partisan political system, which I talk about in great length in the book. And as someone who has really voted independently along both party lines for my entire life, I feel like in a sense that you're talking about Dwight being the manager and you know setting fire to the house, our American political system itself is very much in, in line with that and rewarding kind of some of the worst aspects of humanity. People talk a lot about like, well, we should elect the person from this party and then everything would be better. But people are never having a conversation about like, wait a minute, what if this system is not right? What if the system is is rigged wrong? And can we reimagine it 
to be something much more in line with spiritual principles and with love. We started out talking about, for a little bit, my own evangelical Christian community has has something of a reputation problem for all kinds of reasons, earned and, and unearned. I wonder when you look from the outside, what would it take to convince you that historic Christianity is true? And I, I guess when I'm asking that, what I'm really asking is, what what would it take for you to change and to be persuaded? Or would you say, I've investigated everything and I'm I'm pretty certain about where I am now? Yeah, um, great. What would it take for you to become a Baha'i? What would it take for you to believe yeah. that Jesus's return is not going to be on a cloud with trumpets, but is actually yeah. going to be the return of the spirit of Jesus Christ that returns in some other way? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. What, you know, and it's one of the reasons why Christians have throughout history been very unsuccessful in converting Muslims is because Muslims include the divinity of the Christ. They may not view Christ as like the son, as like God zapped a person with a body and kind of gave him that special station. But for me, I view myself as a Baha'i and a Christian. So I do love Jesus Christ with all of my heart, and I love his example. I love his words. I don't necessarily get with the Nicene Creed or, you know, how things shook down in the, the creation of the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Revolution and Martin Luther. Like, I, all of that stuff, I don't pay that much attention to as a Baha'i. So I've already converted. Consider me converted in the sense that I love and adore Jesus Christ, and I do believe that the only way through the Father when he was alive was the way, the truth, and the light was through Jesus Christ. I, I 100% believe that. And then I also believe that the way to the Father when Muhammad was alive was through the teachings of the, of the Holy Quran. And now I believe that Baha'u'llah is the newest incarnation of the light. I, and I feel like there's a beautiful quote in the Baha'i faith, like, don't fall in love with the lamp, fall in love with the light. And I think that that's, that's what Baha'is seek to do. But listen, here's the important thing. I know there's a lot of Christians like tearing their hair out going, that's not right now. And that's fine. <laughs> but people are often angry at me and that's all right. I can handle it. I've had a lot of therapy, but I will say this. <laughs> the important thing, Russell, is People of faith need to work together and stick together. And the world is in a terrible place. And the more that we selflessly serve for the benefit of all of humanity and work side by side, elbow to elbow, agnostics, spiritual but not religious, born again evangelicals, Muslims, Baha'is, Buddhists, that's what the world needs right now. So much more than any kind of conversion. And this soul boom is not a Baha'i book. I'm not trying to convert anyone to any way of thinking. I'm trying to convert people to a spiritual way of thinking. That's what we need to do is all work together, find commonalities, and love the example of Jesus serving the poor and, and work together and for transformation. Well, you said, what would it take for me to become Baha'i? It would be becoming convinced that Jesus is the lamp or a lamp rather than the light. But 
I believe he he is the light. Uh, but one of the things I'm, I really appreciate about this book is you're really honest and you're also respectful of uh, of people who wouldn't see things this way. And I think mm. having those kinds of conversations are what we're going to need as a country together. The book is Soul Boom, While We Need a Spiritual Revolution by Rain Wilson. Rain, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful conversation. I, I, I didn't know what to expect, and this has just been joyous, and it's been an honor to speak with you. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. I thought that was a fascinating conversation. I thought the book was fascinating. And as I mentioned to Rain, I think he diagnoses a lot of the problems right in terms of breakdown of community, loneliness. Where I'm not convinced is in this understanding of spirituality as something useful. And I think he would not say it quite that boiled down. But I think what he's saying is that basically underneath everything spiritual is the same thing. And we're all kind of getting at that from different directions. That's not what I think is the case. I think that Jesus is either dead or alive. And if he's alive, that means that he was telling the truth about himself. And so I'm not on a track to Baha'ism anytime, anytime soon. I told him off air, I liked the metaphor that he used of the baby in the womb, not knowing why it is that there are ears and eyes and hands. And I told him, I hate to say that the first thing I thought of was Dwight Schrute talking about his twin brother in the womb that he resorbed so that he had the strength of a full-grown man and a little baby. But once I put that out of my mind, I think even though we would see that metaphor a little bit differently, I think that's true and I think that's right. Thanks for being with us. This is The Russell Moore Show brought to you by Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Gravencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.